Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. I love my wife. You probably gathered that by now. If you don't, um, you probably haven't been around me. She's the very tall, uh, beautiful woman that is way out of my league if she's around me. So if you see her, that's Meg. But Meg... Uh, a little bit of a story, but you, you kind of heard me talk about Meg before, kind of our story, but what you didn't know, perhaps, is that Meg prides herself on the fact that she made the first move. Every single time we meet somebody, Meg, we, we get in this conversation, how did you guys meet? And Meg goes, I made the first move. And to this day, it's one of my life's biggest regrets, because she holds that over my head, but she owns it. This woman is amazing. And so, Here's how this whole story went down. All right. Meg was this beautiful, tall, just fantastic woman that I crushed on as soon as I went to Bible college. Like, I went to Bible college to pursue Jesus, and then she, there, there, she was here. She was kind of just taking my eyes off him for just a little bit. Not really. Now let's be honest. But she was like, just like captured my attention right away. And so for like four months, I just kind of like secretly perused, like, just kind of sought her out a little bit, like, she's beautiful. She's awesome. She is way out of my league. Way out of my league. But I'm just going to secretly crush on her. And so we kind of got close. You guys have probably heard this story before. But what you didn't realize is that when she hit me point blank in the eyes with her feelings, I was literally, like, unsure of what to do with myself. So the story goes like this. We're hanging out. We're trying to get to know each other a little bit. Like, we're just kind of having some good conversations. But I, in no way, I'm secretly harboring this massive crush for her. And I I assume that she sees me as her little brother because I'm, like, just a tiny underclassman, whatever it is. And so I have all these feelings pent up. And so in my head, you know when you play those hypothetical situations when you're like, oh, this would be the ideal. What if someday she came up and she's like, Hey, you're hot. Do you want to go get some coffee? That would never happen. But in your head, you're like, that would be awesome. Or like, what if she came up to me and she's like, hey, um, you want to go grab a burger? Because I love to eat. I was like, yes, that would be awesome. But it would never happen because that's just an ideal dream fantasy world. So what actually happened is we're sitting down in this little study room all by ourselves. And I'm thinking, this is kind of romantic. I kind of like this one-on-one time with Meg. Let's go. So we're sitting there. We're studying. And then she goes, can I talk to you about something? Yep, sure. There's this guy on our floor that I just, he, he likes me. And I just don't want to hurt him. I'm just, like, just not into him. And so, like, like I don't, how do I let him down easy? Like, I'm just not really, like interested in him and i'm thinking (laughs) what do i say here yeah he's the worst you should try me i was like oh yeah that's that's a tough one i don't know let's move on let's keep studying so we study we go on the rest of it and then Yes, 
That was me, not Justin Bieber. Don't get him confused. <laughs> We're sitting in this room, this very room, and Meg goes, can I talk to you about something? Sure. Let's talk. She goes, okay. So, um, I don't really know how to say this, and I'm just thinking the worst. I'm like, you know what? She's going to friend zone me right here, right now, and it's not going to be pleasant. And she goes, so I've had feelings for you for a while now, and I just, I don't, you don't have to replicate them or anything, but like, I just have these feelings for you, and I just need you to know. What do you do with that? For three months, I've been praying for this very words to come out of her mouth, and now they're actually happening, and I'm going, am I dreaming? Because there's no way this is reality. And I go, uh, uh, the feeling's mutual. I will never forget that moment because we had this super, like, non-romantic, romantic encounter, and then we're at the end of our study session, we're like, so... What do we do now? You like me. I like you. Where do we go on from this? And then food ensued. And then our relationship went on. And then seven years later, seven and a half years later, we got two children, three annoying pets, and all kinds of chaos. It's fun. The moral of the story is Meg is outside of my league. You probably got that by now. But I, I, I vividly remember this moment of going, I don't know what to do with this. I, I, like, what I just heard, what I just witnessed and experienced is, is beyond what I can actually wrap my head around. Because for so long, I thought about what if this happened? What if this was actually reality? But I couldn't let myself go too far down that rabbit hole because what if it didn't work, right? We go down, we, we do this self-sabotage. Like we need to prepare ourselves for what's happening But when it actually does happen, you're just kind of left reeling, going, I don't know what to do with this. We are now one week post-Easter. And can I just tell you, last Sunday, Easter here at the bridge was so fun. It was so fun just seeing this place just booming with activity and new people and and, and just some old faces, not by age, but by just, you've been here for a while. Seeing all the, the kids area was just exploding from the inside out. It was such a fun weekend. And we talked a lot about the Easter story, Jesus' death and eventual resurrection, but from the perspective of the disciples. And there's so much to learn through that. And so as we sit now, one week post-Easter, I want to pick up the story right where I left off last time because the disciples, they saw something that didn't make sense. As you read the story, as you look through the story of Jesus' resurrection through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus rises from the dead, just like he said he would. But the more you look into the disciples and their behavior, as I just really kind of put a a magnifying glass to their lives in the last few weeks, I noticed that there's some confusion. That Jesus comes back to life, and they're like, oh, what? They're they're reeling because they're not sure what to do with this. It's inconceivable. It's impossible. Are they thrilled? Absolutely. Are they excited? Most definitely. But they're confused. How did you? When did you? Why did you? Uh, what? It, it, they, don't, they don't understand. They can't physically wrap 
their head around it because everything they knew up to this point now doesn't make sense. We saw you die. We saw the life come out of you. And now all of a sudden, you're just up hanging out with us, having lunch. It doesn't make sense. The normalcy, the thing that they knew is is, is just gone. And when you sit in a church in 2022, you go, how'd you guys not see it? Of course, he he told you 10 times he was going to rise from the dead. How did you not know he was coming back to life? We've seen this movie before. We know what to expect. But let me just take you back down to a a far distant memory uh, in a timeline right around March to April of 2020. Anybody remember that little nice nugget of history? That was fun, wasn't it? In January of 2020, you're looking at the extended forecast in Clearwater Beach, Florida. You're like, I can't wait for spring break. Work has been the worst. It's going to be nice out. It's going to be 80 degrees. And you hear about a little virus around the world in January. And you're like, come on. There's the whole political thing. This is just a sham to do something. And I'm not going to get into any of that because that could be a whole nother thing. But in January, we're like, okay, just whatever. February, we're like, okay, like, let's wash our hands, people, all right? Like, just don't go to the bathroom and then go and have a burger without washing your hands. Like, common sense stuff, all right? It's not that big of a deal. And then March rolls around and Italy shuts down, and that was a whole adventure. And then by mid-March, all of a sudden, just like overnight, the country starts shutting down. We're locked in our homes. We're watching the governor. We're watching all these statements come out about this closed down, that closed down. We got to be in our homes for two weeks. I'm going to kill somebody. I hope not, actually. But there's that uncertainty when you're sitting there in your house and you're going, this doesn't make sense. I know I'm only 27 27 years old, but... To my knowledge, for most of us in this room, there had never been anything like that up to this point. Any form of normalcy, any form of what used to be consistent is now completely gone. And you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to handle this. This is completely uncharted territory, brand new. And you sit there and you're going, I don't know where to go. Humans like control. I would dare say humans need control. Some of us like control more than others, but we like to know what's next. We like to know what we need to do. We need to know where we're going. And if we don't, we kind of freak out a little bit. Some more than others. For some of us, taking our spouse on a date without telling them where we're going is not good. It sets the date off on a very wrong foot because they like to be in control. And for good reason. To acquire knowledge, to be informed, to do all that is good stuff. It helps you make good decisions. It helps you be informed and do all that good stuff. But whether you're a disciple that watched Jesus come back to life, whether you're a Justin Bieber-esque 21-year-old who just got told that the girl of your dreams is actually going to be yours, whether you're going through something that's new and uncharted, you're not sure where to go, or whether you are sitting in a church with a lead pastor on his second Sunday, unsure of where to go and what's next, there's this overwhelming feeling that I think all of us, this burning question 
that we've always felt of, so um, now what? What do we do from here? Where do we go? What do we do? What's the vision? What's the plan? Where are we going? Where are you taking us? I'm excited to tell you because we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. I'm not flying by the seat of my pants. Although sometimes that's how I operate. But not in this situation. We need to be informed. We have a plan. And to do that, I like to study and like to tell you what our plans are, where we're going through the pages of the Bible. In John chapter 20, verse 19 and 20, picking up the story right where we left it off last week on Easter. On the evening of that first day of the week, translation, on the evening that Jesus came back to life, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The disciples were scared for their life. They saw with their own eyes the Jewish people, the hyper-religious people, take Jesus, nail him to a cross, kill him, and those same brothers are the same people that are after him too. They knew that they weren't just trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to get rid of all of Jesus and his followers. They were trying to expunge the whole thing. So these disciples watched with their own eyes Jesus get murdered, and now they know they're next. So what do they do? Run to the hills and lock themselves in the room. So Jesus shows up and goes, peace be with you, shows them their sides, and they're sitting there, they're overjoyed. I love what the Bible says, they're just overjoyed. Of course they are. Jesus was their everything. Jesus was their life, and now he's back. But that second piece, the piece I want us to, to notice, that Jesus showed them his hands and sides. When you read between the lines, what I, what I find about that is that the disciples were in disbelief, naturally. A man just came back to life. Of course they're in disbelief. Of course they're confused. But Jesus shows them his hands and his side because his hands still had the holes in them from where the nails went through on the cross. The side still had the scar from where they punctured him to make sure that he was actually deceased. The presence of Jesus in that room did not make any logical sense. They couldn't wrap their head around it. So Jesus shows them the proof. He shows them, guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. Trust me. What you're seeing is actually true. Another version of the Bible says that he asked to eat with them to prove that he wasn't just a ghost, but he could actually digest food. He's trying to show them You guys don't have to doubt I am who I said I am. And seasons of uncertainty and seasons of where we're going as a church and seasons where you're going, I don't know what to do, where to go, how to handle this. And those seasons of so, now what? The first thing you have to realize is that Jesus will meet you where you are and not where you need to be. I love going on hikes. I love going outside and going outdoors. And when we were in Colorado many, many moons ago, I think I was 14, we went on this 14,000-foot hike, super tall mountains. 
was beautiful. But what I've witnessed is that those hikes take a long time. A long, long time. While there's some beautiful scenery along the way, you don't get that euphoric feeling of, whoa, until you get to the top. You spend so long trying to get to the top. And when you get there, hopefully it's worth it. Some of you are like, it's not worth it. Get me a helicopter ride to the top and it'll be worth it. But when you are hiking, a lot of times the joy of it, where you need to be is at the top. Because when you get to the top, you get to appreciate and see things for how they are. And you're trying to get there the whole way. You're, you're, you're going over rocks. You're stepping on, on big roots. You're kind of rolling your ankle a little bit. You're inclining. You're working. You're burning energy off. And when you get to the top, it's awesome. And it's beautiful. But you had to work your way all the way to the top. I think a lot of times when people see Jesus or try and hang out with Jesus or have this relationship with Jesus, like this hike, that I need to get my life together. I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing this. I need to start going to church. I need to stop doing this. We try and earn our way. We try to meet Jesus at the top of this mountain. We try to get there and do what we can to get there because we want to experience Jesus when in reality, he's coming to you. He's meeting you. He's pursuing you. I love looking at this story because Jesus didn't come back from the dead, send out his angels and say, guys, I'm alive, come to me. I'm alive, I'm back, come here. He went to them. He got up from the grave. He defeated death. And he went to the disciples who were scared for their life who had no confidence left at all because their confidence just died right before their eyes. Jesus went to them in their moment of doubt, in their moment of chaos. He went to them. I love this. The story continues in John chapter 20. All the disciples were there except for one the first time he showed up. A man we call Doubting Thomas. Imagine that for a name. Doubting Thomas. He's not there the first time Jesus shows up. Bible scholars are unsure of why. They think maybe he had a family commitment. Maybe he just happened to be stepping out. But eight days after this first encounter where Jesus shows up and says, guys, I'm here and shows him his hands and his side, he comes back eight days later in a very similar situation. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. First of all, gross. I get not doubting, but thinking, I'm only going to believe if I stick my hand in his side. It's disgusting. But this man, doubting Thomas, the skeptic in the room, is going, you guys can tell me all day long that Jesus is back alive. But there's no possible way. I saw it with my eyes. The man is dead. So you think, verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace 
be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, it's not in the text. But if you're Thomas, and you're having lunch, and the doors are locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus is in the room, and he calls you out and says, hey, give me your hand. Um, that's terrifying. It's a little scary. But Jesus knew all things. He knows all things. Jesus knows and knew that Thomas doubted. He knew that Thomas wasn't quite convinced that he was actually alive. He knew that Thomas struggled with this. He struggled with the logic piece. He struggled to have this idea that he's actually back. And what was Jesus' response? Was it to crucify the guy? Was it to shame him, condemn him, and say, why don't you believe? No. He said, give me your hand. And he went by Thomas's condition. Give me your hand. Here's my hand. Here's my side. Thomas, I am here. Jesus met Thomas where he was and didn't ask Thomas to come to him. Jesus met Thomas in his doubts, in his uncertainties, in his disbelief. He met him there lovingly with care. And I believe that God's going to do the same way in our life when we're uncertain. We are conditioned, everybody, to be skeptical. We live in a world that is increasingly more twisted every single year. So we, unfortunately, are conditioning ourselves to be skeptical, to doubt. Whenever someone is unconditionally nice to us, it's no longer normal for us just to accept it as normal. It's now going, what's your game here? Why are you doing this? Are you trying to get me into something? That is our condition. We are naturally, over time, becoming more and more comfortable with doubting, with doing things. And so when Jesus comes along and does crazy stuff in our life, it's tough for us to wrap our heads around. Even what's fascinating is as a youth pastor, I studied a lot on Generation Z. And Generation Z, the teenagers in our, in our midst right now, they are one of the most skeptical and informed generations in our world because they've grown up in a generation of Google. Before, for some of our older folks in the room, if you came up with a fact, that may not be true, but you were really confident in that fact, and you were really good at talking your way out of things, nobody could fact check you. Now, if I say something, that doesn't sound right. See? They, Generation Z, that is how they operate. They have one of the most powerful tools in the history of the world. A smartphone with the internet. And so naturally, it's no longer just good enough for us to say, well, that's what the Bible says, and that's what it is, so believe it. They're like, no, 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 no. I got to be informed. I got to know the ins and the outs. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know what to do about this. I don't know what to do with my kid right now. He's acting up. He's doing something. He, I don't know how to handle this. Help. 
I don't know what to do with the situation at my work. There's, I'm in a moral dilemma because you know what? Like they said this, but they told me not to say this. I'm not sure how to handle this situation at work. I don't know how to handle this relationship right now. Whether it's with a family member or with even a spouse, there, you have these moments where you go, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate this, how to cope with this grief. I don't know. And so Jesus meets you where you are at. He meets you in your questions. He meets you in your doubts. He meets you in your struggles. He meets you in your uncertainty. And instead of saying, just have more faith, he's going, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, welcoming Jesus into your chaos is not about you going to find him. It's about you letting the door open. He's found you. He's chasing you down. He's ready to be a part of your life. You don't have to look high and low to try and find him. You just have to let your heart be open to what he wants to do. And that is hard for some of us. Because in seasons of newness, in seasons of uncertainty, all we want to do is just have answers. But sometimes there are no answers. We like that control. So in seasons of newness, in seasons of uncertainty, Jesus will meet you where you are, not where you need to be. But your role is to trust him for the harvest. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. All throughout the Bible, there's all these references about agriculture, about farming. Because in this day and age, that's, that's, what, that's what you needed to do. If you wanted food, you had to farm it. McDonald's isn't around yet. You needed agriculture. It was a way of life. Everybody farmed. And farming was a little different 2,000 plus years ago than it is now. Now we can kind of work our way around some things. It's really hot and really dry. Guess what? We have irrigation. We have big sprinklers that can just send out water all over our cornfield. We have crop insurance. We have all this stuff. Back in early, two, early zeros and beyond, there was none of that. If it was dry in Israel, if it was hot in Israel like it is a lot, and you needed rain for your crops, guess what you had to do? Trust it was coming. There was no form to get water to your crops. If you wanted, if, if you wanted help through that, all you could do was just pray and hope that God came through. I think the reason we hate so much being, being out of control, the reason we hate so much not being able to know what's happening or what's coming is because it forces us to be reliant on somebody other than ourselves. When you're reliant on somebody else, they can fail, right? They can mess up. And that's just a, a, a gross feeling. But beyond that, when you're out of control, when something happens in your life that is beyond your control, you hate it. Why? Because you're having to be forced and reliant on something other than yourself. And that is challenging. It's why when you sit in the hospital room waiting for the doctors to come out and deliver the news that is either going to be good or bad, you're crawling in your skin because you have no control. All you can do is try and trust the Lord to come through. Trust in the Lord 
with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trusting the Lord is one thing, but leaning not on your own understanding is a whole nother. But they're tied together. Sometimes trusting in the Lord means that you're not relying on your own understanding. It made no feasible sense or no feasible sense that that God, Jesus would come back from the grave, but he did. It made no feasible sense that he would walk on water and come through for his disciples when they were in their crisis. You might see all the pieces. You might see the puzzle coming together, and you're like, you know what? I don't like how this is coming together. I'm unsure. I'm uncertain. I don't like this. And so I'm going to try and fix it. I'm going to try and cope with it my own way, and it never works. You dig yourself into a deeper hole. You're more anxious. You're more upset. It gets messier and more chaotic when all along all we had to do was let go of the control. Can I tell you, I hate this message. This message I could just be preaching to myself right now. I find my security when I'm in control. Because if somebody is going to screw up, it better be me. I can live with that. If I'm the one who made the mistakes, if I'm the one who made it tougher for myself, I can live with that. But having to be reliant on somebody or something else is challenging. But when you do it, it goes back to the whole worship song this morning. God's done it before. Let's do it again. And that confidence in that is way more impactful than anything I could possibly do on my own. All right, Derek, so you took over a church. The founder of this church, after 12 years, is going and moving on to something else. So, now what? Now what? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? The next three or four weeks, every single week, I'm going to unpack this, and I'm going to get more and more specific about where we're going, what we're doing. But today, I think it's important for us to have this understanding that before we go and do anything, before we do all of this, we have to understand that Jesus is going before us. He's meeting us here. This is not Derek leading the church. This is De- Jesus is way ahead of me, and I'm just trying to follow him, and everybody else is going to have to follow along. He is going before. He is doing some cool things. And I know this because in December, I sat down with Chris for the longest, most intense week of just, here's how to be a lead pastor in one week. And let's be honest, it should have been like a 10-week course. But we sit down on the first day, and Chris is like, all right, man. Here's a binder for you. We're going to walk through this step by step. I open the first page and I panic because the first question Chris asked in this week-long intensive training was, what is your vision for this church? And I had no clue. How are you supposed to lead a church if you don't know what the vision is? Who am I to lead a church? I don't even know where we're going. So I sat there and I was just like, I, I, I know Chris really well. I, I, let's be honest, I knew he was going to ask me that. I knew that would be the first thing. So, what's your vision? What's your vision? What's your vision? What's your vision? It's, it's all he ever asked me. And I knew he was going to ask me. When I opened it up, I was like, oh my, what do I do here? And I was distressed because I didn't have that vision. And so, 
he could sit, he could sit, he saw me, and I'm guessing he could just see the hamster wheel just spinning in my head. He goes, can I ask you something? Yeah. He goes, what, what are you passionate about? What gets you excited about ministry? He said, honestly, man, this last summer I went to Phoenix with four of you students. And seeing each one of those youth students go from here in their faith to here, to be on that trip and see them go, see it, the click, and see them get that it's not religion. It's not trying to rehearse things. It's a relationship that is vibrant and alive and real. And for, to see them to get it and to all of a sudden go from here to here, that is what gets me excited. To be on that same trip and to literally see somebody that we're helping with, that we're at a dream center in Phoenix, to literally be there with someone who was in a gang and killed multiple people worshiping Jesus and, and doing all these things, that is what gets me excited. He goes, okay. So what's your vision? And with that, it almost as like a drop in my spirit. Just, it was almost like, not that God came down and said, Derek, this is the vision for the Bridge Church, but it just came together. I felt in my heart of hearts that the vision of the Bridge Church going forward is to see people come alive in Christ through community. What does that mean? What does it mean to see people come alive in Christ? That's a great question because it's different for every single person. To see someone come alive in Christ for one person might be that you're a non-believer, you're an anti-believer, but you know what? You have a life changing experience with Jesus and it changes the way you see him. It changes the way you think about him. It changes you. For some of you, coming alive means you've been going to church longer than I've been alive. You've been there. You've done the mass. You've done the communion. You've done everything, but there's never been a tangible relationship. And now you can feel him. You can sense him. You can do this thing. And so you're coming alive in him. Lydia, can you throw up that last, that last verse in John? I just closed my laptop. Thank you. After Jesus meets them in the room, after Jesus goes to Thomas, meets him where he's at, it finishes this chapter with this. And I think this is just so amazing. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, which is crazy because there's a lot of examples. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. To come alive in Christ means that you have the God of the universe, the God who defeated the grave, alive in you. To see people come alive in Jesus is what I want this church to be about. There are people in our community that aren't alive right now. Physically, obviously. But they're struggling. They don't have the hope. They don't have the assurance that everything's going to be okay. They're struggling. I want Jesus to become alive for them. And though he's not just some stained glass painting on a wall, but he's alive and he's active and he wants them. He's trying to meet them where they're at in their doubts, just like Thomas. He's meeting them where they're at and saying, guys, I am alive. I am here. Will you open the door to me? 
I want to see the person who's been coming to church for a while, but they've gone, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm not good with mediocre anymore. I want life and joy to the full through him. That is what it means to come alive in Christ. Are we still a life-giving church? I sure hope so. But if we're a group of people who are alive in Christ, it doesn't just change this church, it doesn't just change this community, it doesn't just change this state, it changes the world. Because the disciples, they were, they were questioning, they were doubting, they were unsure of themselves, but Jesus meets them. He comes back to life. He meets them where they're at. He meets them in their doubts, meets them in their insecurities, meets them in all their junk. And becomes real to them again and instills confidence in them that I'm with you. I got you. I'm going to go before you. And eventually, 40 days later, I'm going to give you a little teaser for next week. He rises into heaven and is sitting next to God the Father right now. But guess what happened to those disciples? Those guys who were locked in a room by themselves, fearing for their life, came alive in Christ. Because Christ met them where they were. They trusted him with the harvest, and instead of locking themselves in a room, they went into all of the world and started telling them about Jesus. And the church went from 40 to 3,000 to 15,000 to a church in 2020 because they came alive in Christ. My prayer is that every single person in this room would experience Jesus to another fuller dynamic you would experience Jesus in a very, very real way. But so would people who have yet to put step, step foot in this church. People who will never step foot in this church, but they get to be on the receiving end of what God did through this church. If we come alive in Christ, our world's going to look different. And so our church is going to focus on becoming alive. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I pray for myself, for the people in this church, for those that are not a part of this church, I pray, Jesus, God, that we would become alive in Christ. That we would find the life that is found in you, the life that is full of joy, the life that is full of assurance, the life that is full of peace, the life that is found in strength, the life, God, that is all taken care of through you. Lord, we're going to walk through some storms. We're going to walk through some stuff. But there's a difference when we're walking through it alone and we're walking through with you. Because, God, you've proved that there's nothing that can hold you back. There's nothing that can hold you down. So, Jesus, I pray that this church would become alive. We would be excited as you continue to work in our life. It would change us from the inside out. Jesus, I just pray for those that are going through the valley right now, Lord. They walked into this place and they're like, you know what? I just, I have no hope left. I pray, Jesus, that today they would have the confidence that it doesn't matter how far down they are, God, that they are not out that you, Jesus, will carry them through. They just have to trust you, even when it's not easy. 
give them, God, that assurance that you got them. Lord Jesus, we give this church to you. This church is yours. We just pray, Jesus, that we would be obedient to whatever it is that you want for us. Would you go with us today, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.